0: Welcome back podcast listeners. We're here with episode 124 and I think today's podcast is highly anticipated. We sent out a video um, just over a month ago and and we've been able to get the guest on today. So I'm going to read out her biography first. Tony, I know I know that you you know this off by heart, but I've got one written down here that I wanna run through um before we introduce our guest, But today we'll be I knew inter-
1: th- I knew this off by heart before I even met her. I
0: know, uh, it's actually it's actually <laughs> interesting before I get into it as well, Tony. Yeah. I, um I as you know, I'm back home at my parents' house in the country and I just told mum that I'm interviewing uh, the great Nova Paris, and she just, oh, oh my God, I've watched her through my childhood and I've watched her grow. And uh, so shout out to mum. I told her I'd I'd mention that today to Nova. But look, today's guest is Nova Paris. Nova became the first Indigenous Australian to win an Olympic gold medal when she was a member of the victorious Hockey Roos team in Atlanta in 1996. She also became the first mother to be a gold medalist for Australia since Shirley Strickland in 1956. The Northern Territory and born in Darwin in 1971 was an outstanding talent as a hockey player with her pace, agility, attacking skills, making her a distinguished player on the international stage. After her team's Atlanta success, Paris made the decision to turn her remarkable talents to athletics. She excelled on the track winning the 200 and 4x100 gold medals in the 1998 Commonwealth Games before the climax of her athletics career, making a return to the Olympics in Sydney, where she reached the semi-finals of the 400 metres as a member of the Australia's 4x400 meta relay team, which placed fifth. On the 8th of June 2000, 100 days to go, Nova was the first Australian to run with the Sydney 2000 torch on home soil, and we've seen some pictures of those, which was amazing. After being passed through the hands of Aboriginal elders, she ran a stretch around Uluru with her 10-year-old daughter, Jessica, before passing it to Ernie Dingo. Her twin achievements, being our first Indigenous Olympic champion and achieving, um, achieving in two different sports at an Olympic level, make her one of our finest athletes. In 2014, Nova was still ranked as one of Australia's all-time top 10 for the 100, 200 and 400. She was a semi-finalist in the 400 metres at the Sydney Olympics with her 51.28 second quarterfinal run as her PB. On September uh, 7th of September 2013, Nova Paris also became Australia's first Indigenous woman elected to federal parliament. Today, it's great to have you on, Nova, um, and we'll touch on a lot more of your achievements throughout your life, as, as we've heard at the, the last time we caught up, but thank you very much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Tony, I know you're excited. As I said, you, you could have rattled that off yourself. I, I had to read, I must admit, but um, you introduced her last time, but it is really great to have her on today.
1: It is really great to have her on, and I've always been a raving fan of Nova, <laughs> so it's uh, and. Uh, you know, it, w- it was actually wonderful when you came and gave such a powerful talk to a group of our friends, uh, was it now, probably nearly two months ago now, mm. uh, in the office uh, just before the day before the unveiling of the uh, Nova Paris statue at Federation Square, which Gotham Bond were proud partners of uh, and proud to be partnering moving forward with the Nova Paris Foundation, which we, which we will touch on. But Nova, we're, we're going to ask a, a number of questions today, but the, the talk that you gave uh, at our office was so amazingly powerful. And that is the, the story of your family's backstory and the story of the Aboriginal community. And obviously we don't have visuals here, uh, but the, the story of community and how you grew to where you were and you were given the opportunities that you got Uh, and have become one of the most outstanding Australians of all time Uh, and and I don't just mean that from uh, the Indigenous community but I mean that in general. So it's an honour to have you as our guest today but can we get you to start um, you know basically your childhood and then your family's history if that's okay, just a bit of background for our listeners.
2: Yeah so um, I was born and bred here in Darwin on Larrakia country um, back in the early seventies and uh, I'm a cyclone Tracy survivor. So anything past 1974 that was thrown at me, I was clearly well established to handle any sort of shit category cyclone <laughs> that was thrown at me, you know, whether it be a storm or in, in reality. But, you know, in, in, saying that, Tony, I sort of say it with a bit of humor. It, it, it was devastating cyclone Tracy and um, you know, just looking at that imagery, of it just totally just wiping out you know the whole of the the darwin and uh, outer darwin region i just sort of sit there and i scratch my head and i was like oh my god how the hell did we survive that and then knowing you know my my grandparents because it being um you know christmas eve and everyone just thought it was another cyclone if you know mad top enders up here when there's a cyclone everyone has a bloody cyclone party so, you know, they don't really sort of, they go and get their box of, you know, um, preservatives sort of things and for food for the next couple of days. But that's generally what happened. And me and my sister, she was only six months old. Um, you know, we we survived that with our grandparents and my uncle and my auntie and our little dog, Cyclone, came. We just had a mattress over our head and three-bedroom house and three bedrooms were gone. The kitchen and the bathroom and the toilet were the only things that were left standing. So... Um, from that fast forward, um, you know, I um, we went to Adelaide not long after that for, for 12 months and came back to, to Darwin. And, you know, as a kid growing up, I I was very talented and people could see that so much so that where I did survive Cyclone Tracy, my Italian godmother um, used to say, Benny, Veni Nova, you know, all the time. And and she said to my mother, I want to take Nova to athletics. So it was my Italian godmother, Cesarina Gonzardi, that actually got me into athletics. And I said, but, you know, ne- never actually looked back from there. So I think as a kid growing up in Darwin, I had the freedom of, of sports and I had the freedom to be able to go to school without discrimination. And up here in the in Darwin, you know, there's a large percentage of Aboriginal people, 35 40%. And then you've got... Italians and the Greeks and the Filipinos and the Indonesians it's just a big melting pot of multiculturalism and so if you were a a non-Indigenous person you're almost the minority sort of thing up here but you know my my mum was a member of the Stolen Generation and like you said I touched on that when I gave that um, speaking engagement you know to your firm and your colleagues and So she was eight years old when she was removed with her other siblings six four and two to the tiwi islands um where she lived there for 10 years pretty much or grew up you know to be a to become a domestic servant um she was sent down to adelaide when she was 17 18 years old and when she got sent down to adelaide she thought she was going to be a domestic servant because that's what the the kids were trained to be on the mission days and the the family that took my mum in and her other little um, sister from the mission her half well, she called it a half sister. They weren't blood related, but all the half caste children, you know, they were sent there, and there's about 150 of them. You know, without the love of their mother, um, and they were removed. And you know, being an Aboriginal, having an Aboriginal identity was bad. You know, the you were brainwashed to believe that you know you you don't speak your language. You know, um, you're you're going to grow up. In a white man's world and 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 so it's it's really sad and you know my mum's 75 now and um it was only a few months ago that the catholic church actually did a formal apology to the to the members of the stolen generation on, on garden point on the tiwis so you know you sort of feel she left there at 17 and she's 75 and finally got you know an apology from it so if you, you know sadly almost 100 of those young kids have passed on and were never there or to hear that apology so and then i look at my grandparents um who nana was taken from her mother who was a full-blood aboriginal woman when she was two and her father was a white irish scottish man and ran a cattle station in the kimberleys and he had two kids to my great-grandmother and because they were half-caste children and during the white australia policy so they were removed and and likewise with my grandfather who was born in broome in Yarru country and He was removed from his family when he was six years old so for a good 10 12 you know years the the mission life for both of my grandparents and also my grandmother was was the way of their world you know and here we are in 2021 and everyone's you know in in the eastern states um half of our population is in in lockdown but you know my grandparents and my mother endured that for more than 10 years of their life they were effectively locked up and and you know, they weren't allowed to have their freedom. They weren't allowed education. They weren't allowed to play sports. So everything that I enjoyed as a kid growing up, I had the freedom of sports and freedom of education is, you know, it's just a stark contrast to to how my parents grew up.
1: Uh, can I ask a question there? How do you um, break that cycle? Um, because we are, a lot of our, I suppose, um, beliefs we have in life, a lot of our fears, a lot of our positivity, does stem from our upbringing and our parents at the same time. So, how is now uh, your your mother from the age of seventeen when she ha- went to Adelaide, thankfully had a good experience. Um, yeah. Was that correct? So was that was that the start for your family on your children, you and your children's journey? Now, in respect to that slow breaking of the cycle, was that would that have been a start for her? Or yeah,
2: yeah, I I think so. Like you know. Um,
1: Breaking the cycle of trauma, which
2: is, yeah. You know, like I sort of feel when mum left the mission, you know, she left there with a grade four level of, you know, education. And, you know, you're trained as a domestic servant, so and and you're locked up as a kid for, you know, nine years of your life when it's from sunset to sunrise. So, you know, and she often tries to always just remember some of the good things that they had on the mission so it's almost like that the trauma, I sort of feel, this is my own view, is you can either do two things. You can be scarred for life from the, the horrible things or try and block that out and remember some sort of positive things. And I sort of feel that not everyone has the ability to do that, Tony. You know, no one, you know, it's it's hard because, you know, I um, spent some time in South Africa and going to Robben Island there where... Nelson Mandela lived for some you know 30 odd years of of his time and he sort of and one of the the people who was also incarcerated with Mandela was big um was a a tour guard not a a tourist sort of thing a, uh, a tour guide sorry and he made the references that he you can't become a prisoner of your past and that really stuck with me even myself the time I spent in South Africa and Maybe that's what my mother sort of felt as well. She she didn't allow herself to become a prisoner of her past. You know, every day was a new day, every day was freedom. And so when she went to Adelaide and spent time, um, I think it was six or six or seven years with Auntie Joe and Uncle Harold were, were an English couple who had their own children and they said to my mom and Auntie Ann, you know what, you're you're our children too. You know, we've you're not going to be a domestic servant for us. You're going to enjoy the same freedoms as your white foster sister and brother and when they go to the beach and even though it says for white people only you're going to go because you're our family so i sort of felt that mum's life became more optimistic you know because she was treated with human dignity and treated with equality and i sort of feel that when you are treated with some sort of human dignity and equality you start to feel good about yourself and you know so much so that my mum came from the mission life to to winning a beauty pageant while she was in Adelaide, and then she came back, and she came back full of um, self-belief, you know, and self-worth, and she got a job, and she was, even though we had a housing commission place for me and my sister and mum, but that didn't matter because we had a roof over our head, and we could go to school, and so I think sort of mum's really optimistic life, it was a life that she endured, yes, and it had hardship, and yes, it was torturous, and yes, you know, kids, and then that—that that was part of the apology. You know, the apology was the children were abused on that mission, whether it was sexual or physical abuse or mental, you know, all social, emotional. They, the, the church has apologized for it. So again, um, I sort of felt that she didn't allow her become to become a victim of her past. She wanted to it that past didn't define her and and keep her in that sort of dark place. She said you know we we could play sports your kids could go to school these are all the things that she didn't have so that's what she imposed on us the things that she didn't have she wanted to make sure that we had a better life than her and that was how we you know my sport was my freedom my education was my freedom those two things became my my equalizers in life
1: but we had this conversation um over a glass of wine at our office and and the one thing I saw in that, because my parents had a horrible childhood and upbringing as well, I think I told you my father was, after World War II, was raised in a, um, a Jewish orphanage in London, where he actually thankfully had thankfully had a good experience. Uh, not everyone did, but I think my dad was exactly the same as your mum, blocked out the trauma, um, mm-hmm. and every new day was a new opportunity. But... The one thing about my parents, and definitely your mum has done it for you as well, you and I are of similar age, of course, um, is our parents wanted to make sure that we had a better life and better opportunities than what they ever had. And that was I think that was my my father's sole purpose was to make sure, listen, you're good at sport. I'm going to make sure you get out of bed at 4.30, you know, of sports to choose being swimming, poor guy. You know, it's only swimming in rowers and jockeys get up at that time in the morning. So it was – Um. and – but – it was it was having having that you you will you're going to be given every opportunity to have a wonderful life um, and then, as a result of that, you know your three amazing children uh, my two beautiful beautiful boys as well but that we we now as parents are doing the same and actually paying that forward so i think I think you know never never having met your mother but her having that attitude has given you and her grandchildren a whole new, amazing opportunity in life because of that. She's obviously made you a very strong woman uh, and very determined woman as well. So, you know, and I, I think that's what we see in the generational, uh, breaking that trauma and then the generational all the way down. Is that is that fair comment? Do you, do you yeah, think I,
2: I think so. And, and I sort of feel, you know, growing up here in Darwin, um, you know, it it wasn't like the hustle and bustle of Melbourne and, and Sydney where, you know, it's it's a lar- much larger, way larger population. You know, I sort of feel that it was a good place to grow up and, you know, people like myself and Michael Long and, you know, you hear the Riolis and we often talk about it that we didn't grow up with discrimination, you know, because like I said, the the Aboriginal people and the multiculturalism—we were the large population sort of up here, and it was just a, a, a melting pot for so many people of different races. And we just all looked at each other as if, you know, we're yeah, we're all part of the human race. It, you know, I look back at my childhood, and I just, it just—it was never a thing, racism. And it wasn't until I sort of left the Northern Territory where I was exposed to it when I was playing, you know, elite sports and I was like, holy shit, does this, how does this even happen? Um, so I, I sort of feel the the life that we had up here in Darwin where you could play so many different cross-sections of sports and, you know, and you could ride your bike and be told when the streetlights come on, you have to be home and, you know, that, that was the sort of freedom I had. But I also... Dreamt big as a kid, and I think I mentioned that when I spoke in your um, um, and in your office that day, that I had met people like Glenys Nunn when I was 13 years old after she'd won, you know, that 1984 um, Olympic gold in the heptathlon, and I'd met the um, the Australian Olympic team that went on to win gold at the 1988 Seoul Olympics. So I was in a position as a kid where I was talented and. I'd won medals uh, at a national level as a, a school, uh, you know, a primary school kid, and then I went off and played hockey, and I made Australian schoolgirls. So, sort of every step of the way, I had opportunities, but it's like anything, you know, you can't make a horse drink. You can take it to the to the water trough, but you can't make it drink. And and I was always hungry for success, and always wanted to to chase my goals, and you know, with with the the fact that i was allowed to dream big as a kid and and rub shoulders with people who i admired as a kid so i sort of feel a, a few things like that where opportunities were to to ask that question oh can i touch your gold medal can i feel it oh wow how does that feel to an olympic gold medal and then i was like i want one one day you know yeah. And, yeah. you know you just listen to some of the olympians that have just gone you know to to tokyo and there's pictures of them with their when they were little and with their you know heroes and here they are Olympic gold medalists themselves. So you you can never underestimate the power of mentoring or the power of being able to meet your role model or meet your hero. So um, yeah, it's you know you just got to maximise opportunities in life and and you know I, I sort of feel mum didn't have that you know my grandparents didn't have the freedom but I was. Um, you know, my, they, they worked hard and they had the strength and the resilience to say, well, tomorrow's going to be a better day than the day that they'd previously had.
1: Nova, at the, um, at the, we, we met your uh, middle daughter uh, or middle child, uh, Destiny, at our function. She is a ball of energy. Uh, an amazing young lady who's obviously going to be was the life of the party at the end Uh, and I I think she's obviously going to be a great success in her life and the impact that she'll have on people's lives as well you can actually see that in her personality Um, but in listening at the statue unveiling which I'm going to get you to touch on if that's okay because what it was how you were chosen was just sensational. um but we were which we were so proud to be part of. But Destiny and your son Jack. Uh, now Jack, is, all your kids are obviously very talented at sport. Um, and Jack, I believe, holds a few national records in athletics and has um, looks like he's going to be playing football with the wrong AFL team next year. But <laughs> but, uh, but I'll forgive him when we get to recruit him a few years later, hopefully. But is he's, uh, he's, obviously you're going to be wearing the St Kilda scarf now, <laughs> so it's um, but. In saying that, the speech they gave, I I was absolutely touched by both of them. It was just sensational. And they spoke not as – because everyone knows the Nova Paris story of success, but nobody necessarily knows the Nova Paris story of success as a mother. Mm -hmm. Um, And your children have just developed and – They've they've been educated. They've got the natural talent at sport. They don't take that natural talent uh, just for granted. Obviously, they know they have to work hard. You can't be the best uh, by being lazy. So the the story they gave and the foundation of the introduction of their mum. It's like when Destiny said, Yeah, I remember just going down to Parliament House and I had my pass and I could walk in and say good morning to mum and things like that. But to her, it was no different, you know. So it's uh, because you're just mum. You're not Nova Paris, the the gold medalist, and things like that. You're just mum. So, you know, so and mum and dads get crankier kids no matter who we are, and kids get crankier mum and dad no matter who they are as well. So, so just just having all of that fame but your children seem so amazingly grounded Mm. and you can see they're going to go on to achieve such i haven't met your oldest daughter but you can see they're all going to um go on to be great in their own in their own version of their own lives now so that's a congratulations but the statue unveiling Mm. Uh, I want you to talk about that rather than us telling how it was done. I'd like you to tell how you were chosen, if that's okay.
2: Yeah. So I got this really random email from um, these statue artists called Gillian Mark. And so I I got this email, I think it was towards the end of 2019. And so Gillian Mark, um, they have started this global campaign and it's called statues for equality. And, so they did ten statues in the United States. I think it was 2017 or 2018 of ten prominent women, and it was these statues were placed in New York. And so the idea of statues for equality is getting more statues of females, and it's the statues for equality also encompasses race equality. So women, but all women of diverse backgrounds. So because that campaign was so so successful, and Gillian Mark happened to also live. In Australia, when they they're not travelling the world, and so they started this online campaign of which ten women should be immortalised as part of their statues for equality campaign. And I happened to be one of those ten women, so they'd reached out after this campaign, and so the Australian public voted whoever had seen the you know the the um the, the campaign that they're running. And so they contacted me and said I was one of these chosen ones. But part of it was um, you had to, because these statues are worth around $200,000, $250,000. They're amazing, beautiful, big, you know, two-and-a-half-metre life, um, life twice-life-size statues. And, you know, weighing a hefty 400 kilos is the one that mine weighs at the moment. Um, And so we had to fundraise $60,000 ourselves. Um, and then they were going to contribute with other sponsors to the rest of it. And then COVID hit in 2020, and a few of the other women who were the other nine said that their sponsors had pulled out because of COVID. And then there was the, the whole campaign of the Black Lives Matter, which sort of, you know, um, trickled throughout the, the globe. Um, you know, and we've been, as Aboriginal people, been sort of saying this for the last 100 years um, you know, so when Gilly and Mark had contacted me and they said we're going to put our campaign on hold but we want to do one statue and it's your statue and we're not asking you to fundraise $60,000, we are asking you to fundraise 30000 because we can incorporate the rest of it. So I wanted also an artist called Jandamara Kad who's an Aboriginal um, artist from uh, his Yorta Yorta, Gunachamara from Victoria Way and he painted me For my portrait which is hung at parliament house and because he sort of knew my story about me as an aboriginal woman and what was important to me and he encapsulated that in um in my portrait parliament house and so i wanted jandamara to be involved and so gillian mark um said okay well let's do this let's just do the one one woman you know because you're sort of so diverse and in so many different ways you're a prominent australian woman done so much but also an Aboriginal woman and, and a mother and everything and it was the Olympic year so a friend of mine did a GoFundMe page and within a couple of weeks the, the 30,000 for the statue that had to go to the to the um to the boot to both Jandamara and Gillian Mark was fundraised and so they're on their way and so that sort of happened and then you know the event also cost money to put on and and people like yourself and a number of other sponsors jumped on board because they wanted to be part of this, you know, such a significant thing. And we eventually got it, you know, on our second attempt um, (laughs) to unveil it because the the COVID situation, you know, um, struck twice in Victoria in in May and then we got out luckily just the day after the unveiling. So, you know, it was a magnificent day and it was just timely as well because of the Olympics that sort of, you know, continued on that, that weekend. So... You know it's it's an absolute honor and privilege to be immortalized and in such a way and the beautiful thing i sort of see you know go no government money sort of went into it it was a people statue you know the people voted they decided and the funds were raised by the people so i sort of feel it's it's more than a statue you know like i said it, it, it represents women it represents you know women who have come from nothing and made something of their sort of life and it, it represents black excellence and. You know, so much of us are always spoken about in a deficit way, but I wanted this statue to be all of me and it encompasses my history, my, you know, the stolen generation, my totems and what's important to me. And, you know, I didn't come out of a square box. My whole life has been rugged over, over, you know, and that was the, the, the sort of thing of the running across country on the Kimberley. So, yeah, that's how it came about. And, you know, um, it's still there at Federation Square.
0: It and, is, and that uh, bottom, and that bottom nova is remarkable to look at. You know, it's not just a square box that that bottom of the statue. You know, you guys put a lot of time into into making that about who you are.
2: Yeah, and you know that that was important. And I think you know Jan Demara absolutely just nailed it. He, you know, with the the black headed python and the the boab trees, which is from my Kimberley descendancy, and then the the, um, the, the saltwater crocodile, which is our, you know, totem of the binning mob of the West Arnhem, the Gadgetoo people, and, you know, the stolen generation, the flowers, you know, the the, the bush hibiscus, the native hibiscus, which is symbolic of my mum and my nana and grandad who are all members of that. So it's it's beautiful. It's remarkable. It's funny, I I, I know Jeff Kennett really well, and, and Jeff Kennett came to the um, unveiling, and um, uh, I sit on a board with him, and the next day, at the first thing of the board, meeting, he says Nova, I've obviously seen you in full flight at the Olympics and all my sporting career, but you know, for him to turn around and say that that um, was the most striking was the actual bottom of the statue. He said it was just mind-boggling. I've never seen a statue like it ever before. Was his comments on it?
1: <laughs> it was good seeing. It was good seeing Jeff there and uh, Steve Hooker and that was – But I, I still. <laughs> What I thought was uh, quite funny, the um, the CFMEU representative, uh, as we know, the CFMEU union representatives are not known as sugarcoating anything. They're fairly straightforward to say the least. But he did he did uh, make the comment that when Nova Peris calls, we pick up the bloody phone. <laughs> <laughs> So just to see a big, a big strong union rep absolutely in fear of getting a phone call from Nova Paris, I thought that was hilarious. It uh, warmed my heart. <laughs> so, so that was uh, that was great to see. But that, but they were also um, supporters of it as well, uh, which was also wonderful to see too. So you've obviously had a very strong relationship with them, and they've helped in regards to apprenticeships for uh, local Aboriginal kids and things like that as well, which is is actually really been good to see them. Uh, it's, that's sometimes the uh, the press that people don't see of oh, some of the good that these unions can actually do as well. So I thought that was a great story, but I did love the fact that he was in in fear of getting that phone call from Nova Paris. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so that's not the Nova we know. <laughs> so, so it's, uh, but on, on that basis, though, you've um, and moving forward, we will be uh, proud supporters of as well. But the Nova Paris Foundation. So as you know, at, in our office, we Uh, love to help, um, especially underprivileged children. Uh, We have, I suppose, a slant on education for underprivileged children, as our family does as well. Can you talk about the Nova Paris Foundation, which we did a soft launch on, but we're going to launch, I just thought, It was once again, and sometimes, you know, going back to the story of Destiny going around doing the blood testing and things like that as well. But can you talk about how the Nova Paris Foundation came about and what it's aiming to do in the uh, communities, uh, the Indigenous communities?
2: Yeah, so um last year when COVID struck, we were living in, in Melbourne and end of March we decided to get the hell out of Victoria.
0: <laughs> and we we're funny.
2: lucky <laughs> we're in a position, you know, it was, you know, even though I'd spent four fantastic years in, in Melbourne, um, but we we decided to make the move back to to Darwin and um at the time I was still working for Melbourne Water as a consultant and um you know doing fantastic stuff there but we'd sort of gotten to a stage where you know we're not going to go back and what's next on my radar you know i i sort of felt well let's let's establish my foundation and and you know there are so many things that i could have really focused on but um you know you see adam goods and kathy freeman they've you know sports and um education focus but there was a big outcry last year from um a lot of the aboriginal people around food security and a lot of the, um, um, you know, what we're seeing now in Wilcannia in New South Wales, where Aboriginal people can't go and hunt, you know, for bush tucker, they they're confined to their house, and there's a there's a big problem with getting food access into to these communities now. And that was what the Northern Territory was like last year. So I saw, a, you know, a lot of Aboriginal people very active on social media. And so I'd heard of this organisation called Food Ladder, which they um, specialise in um, agriculture technology, um, food technology. So it it was a sort of a no-brainer as in in why reinvent the wheel if you've got an organisation that have already got a footprint internationally and trying to make their way inroads here into Australia. So I've partnered with them because, you know, they've got the the international reputation of these food security um, systems. So... What we sort of found was there is a great need for it in remote communities, but a lot of the Aboriginal people, you know, um, you've got a handful of community people who have three or four different jobs and they're stretched really thin. So I sort of found that my my foundation could be the conduit between the community and Food Ladder to go and outsource the funding. And so it's not just setting up food security, but it's creating jobs. And, you know, um, quite often people think, Uh, diabetes is, you know, because of alcohol consumption or too much sugar, but it's also food is a big contributor to diabetes, the type of food. And so the federal government also instigated a a food um, security and food price federal inquiry in, in a national inquiry. And it was interesting when that report was tabled, you had Linda Burney who publicly came out and said, if this happened in a non Indigenous community, there'd be a, a public outcry. But because it's happened in an Aboriginal community, it's like, oh, yeah, OK. And she even said, it's our third inquiry in 11 years and nothing has changed. So you can't keep going around in the same circle, chasing your tail and expecting change if you don't do things differently. So I sort of felt. Partnering with food Ladder, but you know um, my uh, foundation is broader than that' it's, it's also um, it's got a, a curriculum attached so we will put a smaller food security system in at the school so Aboriginal kids when they're in primary school can learn about agriculture technology and horticulture. you know there's a saying you can't be what you can't see so they see mum and dad working in this in, you know in the outside and they're learning about it there's a career pathway for them. Um, but there's also these you know um, micro business opportunities because you know you can drive from Melbourne to Sydney or Melbourne to Canberra and you're stopping at all these little country towns and in, in country towns there's a barber shop there's a bakery there's cafes there's little restaurants but in Aboriginal communities you don't see that it's like the the level of expectation is so low for Aboriginal people they don't think entrepreneurial don't they don't allow Aboriginal people to grow into a modern world. It's like you go to a commune, you see a you see a school, you see a police station, you see an art centre, you see a health service, and you know, that's and maybe a ranger station, and that's pretty much all well, it. There's there's no cafes, there's no anything like that. So where we're gonna focus on is the Tiwi Islands in a community called Yurakala which is in um, East Arnhem Land and You know, they're they're wonderful, beautiful people, and there's a great need for it. So it's driven from the grassroots. So we've done so much work and and we're just excited now to be able to, We're that close to getting our charitable status. And, you know, once we're all fully up and going, we'll be hunting people down to say, you know, come and support us because you could be part of something that's not been done before. And we want to create a blueprint to say, you know, this is how you empower an Aboriginal community. And it's, it creates jobs. It's, you know, because quite often a lot of the time in some of these communities takes two weeks to four weeks to get any sort of fresh fruit and vegetables. It's just almost unheard you of. So, you're
1: saying that when it does turn up, it's actually half rotten it, um, yeah. and and costs like two to three times more expensive than what it would in a local supermarket.
2: Oh, absolutely. It, it is. It's, it's disgraceful. You know, it's easier to buy... Um, cheap food than it is fresh fruit and vegetables, and you know this this organisation called um, Aboriginal Investment Groups, where they do community laundries. They've also done this trial in a community called Barunga, where they actually, for a whole month, gave free fruit and vegetables at this store, and there was a 640% increase in food consumption with fruit and vegetables by Aboriginal people. So. If it's there, they will eat it. They want to eat it. It's not like that they don't. It's just that they can't afford it. It's it's easier to go and eat a greasy, oil, bloody dim sim or a chicken winding as it is to to buy an apple or a a lettuce, you know. So, you know, and these food security systems can can feed up to 350 people per week. So we want to start it so that people can start eating healthier, you know, to, to be able to live longer um, and so we oh, excuse me, want to, want to do this properly and well, and, you know, with, with full support of the community that we bring them on the journey with us.
1: No, absolutely. So it's, um, and we'll certainly over the next few decades be working with you and supporting, uh, you and Scott on that journey as well. So, which I think is absolutely magnificent. Nova, in closing, um, Jamie, unless you have any other questions because I've hogged this you know no Nova was my secret crush when I was 18 So I've absolutely hogged this so do you have any other questions
0: I, I just wanted to get your thoughts I think Tony were talking before how, how would the athletes have gone um, at the recent Olympics just with you know empty stadiums and and nerves and things like that you know your niece, played,
1: still... your niece was playing hockey in the uh, yeah. in the in the, uh, hockey team so yeah
2: i mean it's the thing is when you get to that level of sports it becomes such a mental it's it's all mental you know i i guess you know the last 18 months all athletes throughout the world knew what their preparation was like because of COVID and lockdown and restrictions of what they can and they 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 couldn't do and You know, I spent some time with the Hockey Roo girls and the Kookaburras when they came up to Darwin before going over to Tokyo. And, you know, they'd done a few stints up here and up to Darwin where they they could get some really good training in. And the only team that they could play against was um, the Kiwis. You know, they went to New Zealand to play against them. So they did have restrictions on that. But I sort of felt when you look at how successful Australia was, I think they had mentally prepared themselves to say it was us and our competition. Every external force didn't matter. And, you know, I I even sort of knew this from my own time that I'd spent in elite sport. It's about controlling the controllables. You know, you can't control the weather. You can't control all the external forces, whether it's raining or hailing or it's stinking hot or it's freezing cold or you're playing in a bloody mini cyclone, whatever, they're external forces you can't control. So all you can control is how you react to that sort of thing. So those athletes would have known mentally they're going into an empty stadium to give it their all. And I sort of felt that, you know, we did exceptionally well. It, it's it's not what sports is about, you know. You 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 expect to play sports to be able to inspire and, and have people cheer for you or bloody boo for you, or whatever it may be. That's what makes sports so exciting is the bums on the seats that, people can go and 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 see and witness and and enjoy so i sort of felt you know absolutely it just would have been a really eerie sort of feeling but watching it from the television you know was just amazing it yeah the the athletics i mean you're looking at the soccer stadium when those the the matildas were were playing soccer just a big empty stadium but you sort of got a feel for the um you know, for Tokyo, you know, all the money yeah. that went into the infrastructure was just I, I, phenomenal and they just it was an empty stadium.
0: I so felt bad for the, I felt bad for the um, volunteers at the opening ceremony that they had to sit there waving for about four hours wow. um, when they yeah. were walking out and they just sat there. I was like, oh, their arm's getting sore there.
2: Yeah. So it's, it was a surreal environment, but I, I, I think – all the athletes that went there, you know, they would have been mentally prepared just to be able to say, well, they're the things, it is what it is, and you know what, it's an Olympic Games. And those memories, you know, Paddy Mills, the Matildas, what we witness as Australians, you know, um, Peter Boll, is just, it, it brought us all, and I don't know about you, but... I watched the Olympics every single day. I didn't leave the house unless it was to go for a walk in between, you know, one sporting event to the next. So, yeah. Oh, that, that,
0: that, TV that, behind yeah me. I had that, that on, TV on the TV had time. the Olympics on the whole time <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was it was I mean, and, and it really did bring so many people together. I mean, we were talking about Paddy Mills when you were down and what a what an inspirational human being. Uh, he is just the one of the most inspirational guys. I remember Jamie talking to me about patty Mills because he was one of the guys who was interviewed in the books uh, Men Real Conversations by Anthony Denny and Emma Sterling. and um and that was actually I think that was the first chapter you went to, Jamie.
0: Jamie's a mad basketball fan. Well, I think even when you're like you know I've listened to a lot of podcasts leading into the Olympics and things like that, and it's for the boomers even going back, you know it's from Gazer's eras and things like that like, what it meant for them to do it, and for, for yeah. Mills to for Mills to play that last game that he did, um, and to put the team on his back, like it just was inspirational. I, I think that's my biggest takeaway from the Olympics was the Boomers, um, yeah, and just how happy he still is. I think he's just he's just come back to Australia and come out of quarantine fully kitted up, and he's like, <laughs> you <laughs> know, got so his Cooper, and he's, he's having the time of his life. And I think he's just an infectious personality, and like he. He galvanised all of Australia. Like, I, I think the Boomers just – is our team at the moment. You know, they always talk about our team, and they, they really are, and Paddy Mills is at the forefront of that. Yeah. yeah, he certainly is, yeah. And there was so much
1: pressure put on him as well because, you know, he was – he was the guy that if we had any chance of winning a medal, he had to play at 100% every single game. Yeah. And
0: well, I like uh, even 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 the Americans call him like when he it's so funny when he plays for the Boomers it's Boomers Paddy like there's, <laughs> it's it's <laughs> like an alter ego when he goes to the Boomers that he becomes Boomers Paddy.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, he's magnificent. But you you mentioned Peter Bowl too, and his his um his performance, the way he carried himself, the way he spoke when he was interviewed uh he he's just he he was out there it sort of reminded me of um i've forgotten his first name his surname prefontaine uh back in the days in 1972 Mm -hmm. he just he just went out and he ran and he ran every race to win and you know so peter boll he put himself in every position uh to potentially win uh that gold medal and when you consider that from From a you know a general athletics perspective, and obviously athletics doesn't get the same prominence here in Australia, say what it does over in the US and things like that. But uh, everyone knows who Peter Bowles is now. and but the way he actually stood up and the way he was interviewed, the way he carried himself, and the way he ran that race, he ran that race. He ran every race, uh, every qualifying race, he ran it to win. he He was there uh, with that one sole purpose and what and what a an amazing i i think for me you know the swimmers were fantastic uh, but for me the standout uh two individual standouts and neither of them were gold medalists was patty mills and uh, peter bowl yeah. uh just just sensational absolutely sensational just did australia uh, is so proud i think yeah well yes, they okay. they were definitely
2: my Two of my and that, and uh, Sorry,
1: and that's apologies apology yeah. to my two Olympian friends, Steve Solomon and Kath Mitchell as well. <laughs> sorry, guys, but <laughs> I thought you were both magnificent as well. Uh, Kath in her third Olympics now, but it was, um but yeah, so Peter Bowe and Paddy Mills, they were just inspirational. We were surrounding the TV. We were not going to miss that. Uh, those events under any circumstances so it was it was it was sensational to watch and even without the crowds i agree with you it was still sensational yeah yeah so no but we've taken up enough of your time today can't wait for you guys to get back to melbourne uh when we're all allowed to again uh it'll be nice if it's before the end of the year so really looking forward to this thank you so much for everything you've done for us and our team as well and uh, you know, we were hoping that we were actually going to be up with you and your and your mob up there now, <laughs> and now at this time. Obviously, uh, we can't do that, but we will be up there with you uh, one day in the very near future as well.
2: Yeah, no, that's awesome. Lovely to speak to you both and thank you for having me on and I hope everything goes well for the next couple of weeks and you're out of lockdown before you know it.
1: Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs>
2: thank All you. right. Thanks, Thanks James. Bye. 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 Okay.
1: Do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkan Bond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkan Bond and co. and the hosts of the Kofkan Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.